whatever happened to Great Inflation 2? For quite a while there, everybody said 2021 was going to be the next 1971. Except money and bond curves all had warned not to believe it. The problem is we're all led to believe that yield curve and especially yield curve inversion is all about just recession. And since yield curves have been heavily inverted for so long and there doesn't seem to be a recession anywhere close to the United States, it must be these things are all nonsense. There's no information on the yield curve. It's been inverted and nothing seems to have happened. But yield curves are actually about the direction of interest rates, long run as well as short run, maybe long run more than short run. And interest rates, well, we have a big problem interpreting what interest rates mean, as well as how they relate to macro factors like inflation or recession. We've got to decode curves in a proper fundamental fashion. So even though GDP is what it is in the United States, 5% in the third quarter, stocks are at record highs, there's no negative payroll reports, that doesn't mean we should discard the information and yield the money curves. Quite the contrary. Remember higher for longer? The curve said don't buy that one either. And what did the Fed just do this month? They just gave up on it too. They said, forget about it. We're actually thinking about rate cuts too. Another one, Great Inflation 2.0. Great Inflation 2.0 was the base case for so many people. 2021 heading into 2022. But yield curve inversions, not necessarily about recession, were saying interest rates are going to go lower, which is inconsistent with a great inflation. But as I said, the problem is the public doesn't know what interest rates mean and they don't know how it works with macro implications such as inflation or recession. So let's put all of these things together. Curves, what they're actually saying, what the direction of interest rates are, inflation, deflation, all of these things in the context of 2023 heading into 2024. And the great place to start is defining what we mean when we say inflation or deflation. Contrary to what you hear all the time, there's actually different types of each one. Starting with deflation, there actually is only one kind of deflation, and that's monetary deflation, which is a redundant term in my mind. But monetary deflation is where prices go down because of an interruption in the free flow and circulation of money and credit in any system. Monetary deflation is the absolute worst case in any system, economy, banks, everything else. That's what, what ha that's what happened in 2008, real monetary deflation of the kind we hadn't seen since the Great Depression. Of course, the results were similar, as I mentioned in a video just a couple of days ago. But as beside monetary deflation, prices also go down in broad terms for other reasons far less destructive reasons, in fact, actually for good reasons. Productive disinflation, where prices go down because of free market capitalism and the success of both of those, prices fall because of mass production, Adam Smith's invisible hand. So as free market capitalism works its magic, prices magically go lower, that's not deflation. That's not a bad thing. That's not something to fight against. Those are two very separate issues productive disinflation and monetary deflation. Yet we don't try to measure or record or keep track of those as separate issues because I'm not sure how you could. Same on the other side where it comes to consumer prices going higher. 
Higher consumer prices, everybody just calls it inflation, regardless of the reason why. Whereas you don't want to call productive disinflation the same thing as monetary deflation, you also don't want to say the supply shock version of consumer prices is the same thing as monetary inflation. Two different things, even though seemingly the results are the same. Different causes, different effects. In the supply shock case, it's simply where demand and supply are, are, are unbalanced for whatever reason, such as in 2020 in the pandemic. Therefore, prices are the only way to adjust. For example, when demand is increasing faster than supply is able to respond, prices have to go up. But in that situation, prices aren't going to stay up. They're eventually going to normalize, not necessarily re go back down and reset to where they'd started, but they'll stop rising at the, uh, at the same fast rate. But monetary inflation, real inflation, is a very different story. That is too much money tasting too few goods. You've probably heard that adage before. So it's an expansion of money supply, but more so the expansion and recirculation of credit through an economy that continues to go over and over again therefore keeping prices out of balance and unable to rebalance with actual economic fundamentals separate from the monetary system or the banking system, wherever that's coming from. So we have real money disinflation, the breakdown in the circulation of money. That's the worst case. We have productive disinflation, which even though prices go down, that's nothing like the other deflation. We have legitimate inflation, which is money supply and money circulation being too much. And we also have the supply shock, which is yes, transitory consumer price behavior. And what curves were telling us, if you understood what they were saying, if you understood that low rates are not a good sign, was that great inflation 2.0, that was not the case in 2021 and 2022. In fact, the curves began to invert late in 2021. They flattened out and inverted, Eurodollar futures did in December 1st of 2021, suggesting that according to market participants, which are the monetary system, interest rates were likely to be going lower for however high the Fed decided it was going to push them higher along the way. Rates wanted to go back down, even before they really got started going up, which was a pretty clear signal, a decisive signal against great inflation. And the reason is because interest rates are backward to how we are taught to look at them. Everybody says the Fed hikes rates, that's tightening. Interest rates go down, that's loosening. When history has shown repeatedly, it is exactly the opposite. When longer term bond yields in particular, but also money rates in certain cases, but when longer term bond yields are going up, that's inflationary. So if we had seen interest rates go up on their own, curve steepening, not flattening out and inverting in late 2021, early 2022, that would have been a sign that it looks more inflationary, sustained inflation, monetary inflationary than not. But because curves were starting to push back against rate hikes and wanting to move lower through time, that was a clear signal of the 2010s style disinflation, more likely to be disinflation than not. It was not a sign of great inflation tendencies. So rates that want to go lower, regardless of where short-term rates can end up being because of the Federal Reserve, not inflation. Rates that want to go higher, regardless of the Federal Reserve, that's inflation. And that's what history has shown 
repeatedly. And we can make all of these comparisons. We go back through time and see all of these correlations, rough as some of them are, and establish these as validated principles. Let's start with the 1930s depression. This one's easy. You could also do this in the 1990s in Japan, the famous two examples. Rates go down for the depression in Japan in the 1990s. During the 1930s, rates went lower too. And the reason is because safety and liquidity are prioritized. And the interest rates that we track, risk-free, are safe and liquid instruments like government bonds. So government bond yields go down because safety and liquidity are in high demand. So the interest rates that we all look at are going lower, not as stimulus in the economy, but as a reflection of fears over safety, fears over liquidity, which are liquidity and safety, a negative reflection on the monetary condition. If money's in tight supply, it's actually not circulating. It's less about supply as it is about circulation. If money's not circulating, demand for safety and liquidity goes up when interest rates go down. We see this repeatedly. Now let's look at the inflation case. Let's look at great inflation one and how that was different from what we saw building up into 2021, 22, and now 23 and 24. We don't have a really good proxy for money supply because Money supply, again, isn't the end-all be-all. It's all most mostly about circulation, but also we no longer are able to define money, let alone measure it. That's because of the Eurodollar evolution. The Federal Reserve lost track in the 60s and early 70s, and nobody has been able to get back on track with monetary definitions ever since. So we really don't have a good proxy for money supply or circulation. We do have a couple decent proxies or decent enough proxies that do have some discrepancies, though. Those are pretty uh, informative, too. So in this case, without having a real good measure of money supply and circulation, we'll just use something like bank credit because it goes back a long way to 1947, believe it or not. It's about commercial banks in the United States, which is also a limited fact, limiting factor because we're really talking about global money, not just U.S. money, euro dollars, not just domestic onshore dollars. Not that there's really a difference there. The euro dollar system, we don't know about money. We don't know really know about uh, supply or circulation. So we'll just use, in this case, domestic bank credit as a rough approximation for overall monetary and financial conditions. And it's good enough because what you see as a rough proxy is exactly what I've been saying throughout this video. The, leading, the period leading into the great inflation, the early 1960s and 1970s, what do you see? Bank credit suddenly gets a sustained wave of credit creation. So in the early part of the 1960s, in the middle part of the 1960s, just before we hit to the great inflation, suddenly banks are expanding their balance sheet and financial activities. That's what bank credit's about, lending as well as the financial assets they have in their balance sheets, whether they're some kind of bonds or something else. But essentially... In the 1960s, banks start to go haywire. While it doesn't exactly correspond with something like the CPI, the year-over-year -year change, it is a good enough proxy where you can see banks are going crazy at the same time suddenly consumer prices are as well. You look at the period after the great inflation, banks are beginning to pull back. Credit creation is still growing pretty rapidly, especially in the early part of the 1980s as consumer prices are dropping down and decelerating. So there's a bit of a discrepancy there, which I'll get to in a minute, but overall bank credit starts to calm down and so do consumer prices, leading to the so-called 
great moderation. That wasn't necessarily so moderate. But there is a big picture correlation between bank credit both into the great inflation as well as coming out of it. And there's been an even better one since 2008 and 2009. But let's talk about those discrepancies because I think those are important too. The first one shows up in the 1980s. While bank credit and consumer prices are pretty, are pretty solidly correlated, not perfect in the 1970s great inflation, they're basically what you would expect, bank credit is still growing pretty rapidly in the early 1980s, whereas consumer prices fall off much more, more significantly, more substantial. And then you see the same thing happen in the later 1990s into the early 2000s. Bank credit, which had fallen off, uh, had grown had grown much less rapidly late 1980s into the 1990s, along with consumer prices. Suddenly, bank credit accelerates late 1990s into the early 2000s, which we all know is the housing bubble period. But why didn't that turn into consumer price inflation in the same way it didn't in the early 1980s? And I think the answer is, and you've probably heard this before, the other type of deflation, or in this case, productive disinflation. So while monetary inflation was maybe stronger than we would have seen in the early 1980s and this again in the late 1990s and early 2000s, it was balanced by the euro dollar creating globalization. So you had productive disinflation in the production of goods and transportation of goods, the importation of cheaper products all over the world, which is a positive sign um, because it shows that the real free market capital economy is working the way it's supposed to. So you have in these two instances where we know uh, the globalization was at its pretty much at its strongest, that was balancing out what might have been more monetary type of inflation, especially in those two periods. We also see the same types of behavior in interest rates. Again, heading into the great inflation, the 1960s into the 1970s, interest rates are rising, not falling. Rising interest rates are consistent with inflationary periods. In particular, take a look at the federal funds effective rate. In this great inflation period, the Federal Reserve is not targeting uh, federal funds. That doesn't come until the 1980s. But largely the federal funds rate is dictated by market conditions, which is why you see the federal funds rate go way up in advance of consumer prices because banks are demanding federal, federal funds in order to, to, um, to satisfy reserve requirements related to the increase in credit. So you see a very good correlation between the effective federal funds rate and consumer prices because demand for federal funds is rising. Therefore, the rate on federal funds is rising because the Fed is not expanding Fed uh, bank reserves at the same rate that the market is demanding them. So interest rates go up because demand for money of all kinds is going up. Therefore, consumer prices eventually go up too. You see how the federal funds effective rate is leading consumer prices, both on the way up as well as on the periodic ways down, the intermittent recessions that showed up in the 70s. Demand for money of all kinds, which the federal funds effective rate is a proxy for, goes way up and interest rates go way up and follow, which is exactly what Newt Wicksell had said way back in the early 1900s. Rates go higher during inflationary periods because demand for money is incredibly high. It's circulating, it's moving, it's being created in the form of credit. So as a better proxy for what banks are doing during the great inflation, you see a federal funds rate and longer term bond yields go higher, rates go up inflationary. 
Rates stay up, great inflationary. It's that simple. Now, the Federal Reserve then responded to all of these monetary changes in the, 70s, in the 60s and 70s by basically abandoning its old ways of doing monetary policy. It began targeting the federal funds rate around 1982, as Alan Greenspan admitted in 1997, which means the federal funds effective rate was more a reflection of what the Federal, the federal Reserve was doing rather than conditions in the money marketplace. As Greenspan admitted, we lost the information contained in the federal funds rate because they started targeting it. But overall, interest rates behave in exactly the way we, we want them to, or exactly the way they're supposed to, which is throughout the disinflationary period of the 80s and 90s, rates are going lower. Not in, not in lockstep with CPIs because of that, what we just talked about with productive disinflation, but inflation expectations along with growth expectations readjust in the post-1970s era. So rates going down, less consumer price inflation of whatever type. Not, the markets came to believe that consumer price disinflation was becoming more and more entrenched, and that was the correct interpretation. That brings us to the post-2008 period. And what do we see in post-2008? Well, you see, first of all, a huge drop-off in bank credit, loans, bonds, everything. Banking balance, bank balance sheets among commercial banks, not just in the United States, but around the rest of the world. Those are heavily restrained. Not only do they contract substantially in 2008 and 2009, they never actually come back either. And so the rate of growth following 2008 is already diminished, which consumer prices follow along in disinflation, not because of productive disinflation, but because of that past episode of monetary deflation. And again, bank credit is sort of the speed limit for consumer prices. And you see in 2020, there was that one difference that I talked about in just the last video I put out on 2008 and what happened there. Bank credit expanded sharply in 2020 and 2021, which everybody said was the money printing, when all it was was banks trying to accommodate these pandemic measures from the federal government largely. So banks one time expanded their balance sheets in 2020 and 2021. And then you can see ever since late 2021, November 2021 in particular, banks have gone back into the same mode as they had been in since the 2010s. And that's what interest rates have been telling us ever since then too. Think about this. Yield curves began to really flatten out when? October and November, 2021. Euro dollar futures inverted for the first time in December, 2021, as banks were shifting out of pandemic mode and back into 2010s mode. So ever since then, curves have been saying interest rates are more likely in the long run to go back lower than they are to go higher. That's what the inversions have been telling us. And now that we see the disinflation coming in every form across consumer price measures, more and more that has been confirmed. Even the Federal Reserve is giving up on higher for longer for their own read on consumer prices. So what does all this mean? Let's put it all together. Bank credit as a very rough proxy, that's sort of, again, the speed limit for consumer prices. So as bank credit goes up, that gives consumer prices more chances to go up because there's more credit flowing through the economy. We see that throughout the history of bank credit, 1970s great inflation, as well as the disinflationary period, and even the 2010s period too. And especially 
the 2020s. Bank credit is now flat to contracting, which means consumer prices are more likely to continue to get more and more disinflationary, if not ultimately deflationary, depending on if this bank credit contraction continues to go further, as maybe what these curves are telling us. But overall, it's interest rates that are the ultimate signal for the direction of the overall economy as it relates to recession, inflation, or deflation, all of these things. And interest rates ever since 2021 have been trying to go lower. It's been the Federal Reserve and its short-term rate targets that are pushing rates higher, but they continue to fight back about it and go lower because they know they are the banking system. The banking system is back in 2010s mode, which is a, a, which is a signal that monetary conditions are more like the 2010s than anything like the 1970s. Low rates, depression economics, deflation economics. How far into deflation? That's what we have left to consider, to figure out. So what the yield curves have been saying, first of all, there was not going to be a great inflation too. Second of all, don't believe in higher for longer. And third of all, that's the part we still have left before us. The yield curves got right the first two. We just don't know what this end stage looks like because there's going to be an end stage. How do we get from where we were in 2021 to something more like the 2010s moving forward from here? I think that means deflationary recession, but that still remains to be seen. But again, if the curves were right about those other two things, especially not having a great inflation show up again in the 2020s, what else might they be right about that is consistent with low interest rates? If you want to learn more about the basics behind these curves, well, just recently we put out the basics number seven and eight from Eurodollar University talking about bond and money curves and what's really behind them. Check that out, link below me. As always, I thank you for joining me. Huge thank you to Eurodollar University members and subscribers. Happy New Year to everyone and take care.